0: There are many, many stories out there of people who tragically and all of a sudden found themselves in an extremely dangerous situation and they had to survive for days in order to be rescued. A couple of these are recorded in a popular publication. We all know the news story about the Thai youth soccer team that back just a few years ago, back in 2018, found themselves trapped in one of Thailand's longest caves when a flash flood came out of nowhere and forced them back a- a deep into the cave. While the team and their coach tried to dig their way out, their rescue only came after a British diving team exploring the cave just happened upon them nine days later. Eight days after that, every member of the team and their coach were safely rescued. In 1981, a man named Stephen Callahan successfully completed a solo trip across the Atlantic Ocean in only his 6.5-meter sloop. And on his return trip home, a shark or a whale or something struck a hole in the side of his boat in the middle of the night. As his boat started to sink 800 miles from the closest Caribbean island, Callahan kept diving back into the boat to retrieve his survival gear and six-foot-wide life raft. When the boat sank, Callahan survived on his life raft using his spear gun to fish and using a solar still to to convert the salt water into potable water. On day 14, after his boat sank, Callahan signaled to a passing ship, but the ship didn't see it. By day 50, Callahan was covered in sores from the constant exposure of the sea on his skin. He was dehydrated in the tropical climate and kept trying to patch a hole in his worn-out life raft. By day 76, 76, Callahan was barely hanging on, exhausted, and having lost a third of his body weight. That day, he was finally spotted by some fishermen off the coast of Guadalupe and rescued. In both of these stories, no matter how good these people tried to survive on their own, while it it still required great amounts of strength and determination and grit, They all still would have died, ultimately, had it not been for somebody else rescuing them. No matter how hard they tried, their survival still would have been impossible without being rescued. And all these stories are inspirational because they all ended well. They all had happy endings. Here we are on resurrection or Easter Sunday. This is the happy ending. To everything that happened on Good Friday. The crucifixion and the death of Jesus. It's amazing that as you read through the four gospel accounts of these events. Just how many people did not understand. Didn't get that Jesus would rise from the dead on the third day. He told them on multiple occasions that it would happen. But they forgot. They were so racked with grief that all they saw was the finality of Jesus' death. That was it. There was no more. In fact, why were the women even at Jesus' tomb on the Sunday following Jesus' death? To anoint his corpse to, with, with embalming spices. They weren't there to say, hey, maybe... maybe Just maybe, he may have risen from the dead. No, they brought their spices with them. They fully intended to anoint his corpse with embalming spices. They weren't there to see if he had risen from the dead. They were there to affirm his death. That's why they were there. But as we all know, things were completely different at the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. His tomb was merely borrowed. Jesus said, thanks. There were a couple of angels hanging out there. And as the women were distraught at the disappearance of Jesus' body, they said, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. What are you doing? He has risen. And then I love how the angel ends that statement with, just as he said. This isn't a surprise. He told you multiple times. He just proved everything that he said. In other words, he told you that he wasn't going to be here on the third day. He told you that. He told you that He would rise from the dead. And eventually all the confusion for the women and Jesus' disciples finally melted away into complete joy. Jesus died and and had risen again. He suffered for the world's sin and crushed death and the enemy of our souls when He took His first breath again in new life. But before all of that happened, On the same night that he would be betrayed by Judas Iscariot, arrested, illegally tried in a night trial, and finally nailed to a cross, Jesus spent the last Passover or the last supper that he would observe with his disciples. During that time, Jesus' focus was not on all the excruciating torment he was about to go through. His focus was on those who had given up everything in their lives to follow him. In fact, Jesus spends five entire chapters in the Gospel of John devoted to giving strengthening words to His disciples. Those who would have to take His message following His death and resurrection to the rest of the world. Nestled within these five chapters of empowerment are the comforting words found in John 14:1 through 6 It's only logical as Jesus knew what awaited him later that evening, he would give comfort concerning the inevitability of his death. Especially on this Easter Sunday, April 4th, 2021, are these words entirely relevant? We've just experienced one of the hardest and strangest years most, if not all of us, have experienced in our entire lives. In fact, I don't know if you remember, but last Easter, we couldn't even have an Easter service. We were all home because of the state restrictions. And too many of us experienced the death of a loved one over this past year, whether it was related or unrelated to COVID. The whole concept of death has been at the forefront of most of our minds lately. Whether it's seeing the state or national numbers of COVID-related deaths increasing each day or ex- experiencing it personally. And so as difficult as it is to walk through, death is a necessary truth to digest and come to grips with. But as we'll see in Jesus' words today, this day that we celebrate his resurrection, death, while extremely difficult to deal with, has been infused with the hope Of Jesus' resurrection. Death is not the end. Because Jesus rose from the dead, death is really just the beginning. So like I referenced today, if you brought your Bibles with you today, uh, please turn to John chapter 14. This is what we read in our scripture reading. If you you didn't uh, bring it with you, there should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John chapter 14, or you can look this up on on your Bible app on your smartphone. I want all of us to see this. John chapter 14, and we're going to be starting in verse 1. This is in the New Testament. It's the fourth book into the New Testament. If you're having trouble finding it, look it up in the table of contents. No shame in that. Or ask a neighbor. John chapter 14, verse 1. We read this. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In the preceding verses, Jesus had just revealed a lot of distressing information to the disciples. He was going to be leaving them. He was going to die. One of them was going to betray him to that death. Simon Peter would betray him three times. And Satan was set out to destroy all of them. It's a lot of distressing and upsetting words. That's a ton of depressing information for the disciples to process. But even in spite of all that, what does Jesus say? What are his first words in John chapter 14? In spite of all of that, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't be afraid. Don't let your heart be disturbed. The disciples' hearts were disturbed and they had every earthly reason to be disturbed and scared out of their minds. And there are things in this life that either have happened or are down the road that are disturbing and they're frightening, and we have every earthly reason to be scared to death of them. But Jesus' whole point was: in spite of all of that, don't be afraid. Don't let your heart be troubled. These are very powerful and very audacious words. Why shouldn't we be afraid? That's some goal you have to tell us those words. The disciples must have been feeling these exact emotions. And we usually think the exact same thing when we're going through something extremely difficult and distressing and frightening. Why shouldn't we be afraid? It seems like death and destruction walk right alongside of us. But Jesus' words to his disciples in chapter 14, verse 1 are the same exact words to us today. Because of Jesus' answer. Believe in God. Believe also in me. If there is any belief in God, that must go hand in hand with belief in Jesus. What kind of belief in Jesus? That he merely existed? That he was a good religious teacher? We'll we'll find out in a second. Even for Jesus, even to say these words that he said in verse 1 was a very blasphemous statement for Jesus to make to his Jewish disciples. Jesus is putting himself on the exact same level as who? God the Father here. Believe in God, believe also in me. There are no uh, conditions applied to that. If you believe in God, you must also believe in me. Anything the Jewish people trusted God for, provision, protection, salvation, and all of God's promises, they were to trust Jesus with. That in and of itself is a pretty audacious statement to make, isn't it? Imagine if I said, everything that God promised to you, trust me for. You'd say, where's the rope? Let's tie him up and get him out of here, right? But it's the very basis, what Jesus says here in verse 1, is the very basis for the even more audacious statement that Jesus will make in a few verses. Any hope about death can only come from a trust in who God is. Therefore, as Jesus states here in verse 1, any hope about death can only come from a trust in who Jesus is. They are one and the same. You can't have one without the other. You can't claim some kind of trust and faith in the existence of some higher power and never specify it to mean Jesus. It doesn't work like that. You know what that is? That's a cop-out. I'm sorry, but it's the truth. That's a cop out. Jesus is very clear about this. Trust in God, that means trust in me. Jesus goes on to reveal the hope that's wrapped up in that very short statement in verse 2. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare. A place for you. This is directly connected to the disciples' death as well as any other believer in Jesus Christ's death. Without getting into too much detail, this is a reference to the dwelling place of God or the eternal home of heaven. Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to prepare places for them in that heavenly home. As one biblical scholar pointed out, the imagery that Jesus uses here is that of an astoundingly wealthy home. In the Roman world, this beautiful home then has additions added onto it to make more room. That's what kind of imagery Jesus wants to get across here an opulent home of peace, abundance, and joy. Jesus is making a promise here that he has to go away from earth, but in doing so, what he'll be doing in the meantime is preparing places for all those who place their trust in him. That's part of what He's been doing for these past 2,000 years since He ascended back to heaven. We've never left His mind during this entire time because He's either preparing our heavenly home for us or He's interceding us before the throne of the Father. You could say that all of what Jesus is still doing, even right now at this very moment, is solely about us. That's how much He continues to love His followers. That never changed. From Jesus saying these words in John 14, even through this very moment, nothing has changed. And since Jesus made the promise of preparing our heavenly home, he makes another promise directly connected to that. Verse 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may also be. This is a reference to an end times event known as the rapture. You might have heard that term before. It's when Jesus will partially return out of heaven, bringing with him all of the souls of those believers in him who have already physically died. He will resurrect those believers in him who have already physically died, resurrect and glorify those souls' bodies from death reunite them with those souls, and then call up any believers who are still alive to be with him and be reunited with their believing loved ones. As Paul wrote to the heartbroken Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 4, at that point, all believers in Jesus, whether they've already died or whether they're still alive at that point, will be with Jesus for the rest of eternity. Jesus makes that same promise here in verse 3. He says, since I'm going to prepare that heavenly home for all of my followers to enjoy together someday, if I'm putting all this work into this, I'm going to come back for you. I will return and bring you there. I will return to take you there. And you will always be with me. Rest assured, brothers and sisters, Jesus never breaks His promises. At, that, at this point in John 14, after following Jesus for three years and listening to Him teach about the kingdom of heaven and how He would suffer and die and rise again in order to gain admittance into that kingdom, Jesus says in verse 4, you know what I'm talking about. You already know this. You know that road that I'll be taking to this heavenly home is by way of the cross. That's why He says in verse 4, you know the way where I'm going. You know the road that I'm taking to that heavenly home has to go through the cross. It has to go through the cross. There's no other way. But the problem is the disciples didn't. They didn't know. They didn't get it. They've been given all the information, but for whatever reason, they haven't yet put all the pieces together. And they still will have not put all the pieces together until Jesus finally reveals himself to them after his resurrection from the dead. That's why Thomas, the spokesman for distrust and doubt, says in verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? The disciples still didn't get that Jesus would have to die in order to be glorified. The Messianic servant of God was prophesied. He must suffer in order to be glorified by God and sit at His right hand. This was the source for Thomas's question. But the only cross and the only suffering, but only the cross and only suffering wasn't the way to God's kingdom. Anybody could do that. Anybody could suffer. That's not the way to God's kingdom. Jesus wanted to be very clear about that. God had provided a way for Jesus' disciples, as well as anyone and everyone else who wanted it, to gain admittance into the kingdom of God and His heavenly home. And this is it. Verse 6. If you don't pay attention to anything else in this message today, please pay attention to this. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am the only way. I am the only truth. I am the only source of life. This is such an offensive statement for Jesus to make and such a blasphemous statement for Jesus to make that is noted by one biblical scholar. The scholarly Jewish response to this is that it had to be inserted later by Christians, even though there's no evidence for this, and frankly, all the evidence points to the fact that they're authentic. Scholarly Jewish minds cannot reconcile what Jesus says here with the rest of what's written about Jesus. The only answer in their mind is that it had to be, it's fake. It had to be inserted later. Jesus' statement in this verse, verse 6, is that appalling. Appalling. You know what? One could poo-poo those words away as the words of a liar or a madman if it weren't for one annoying fact. Don't you hate when this happens? One annoying fact. The one who said these words backed them up by accomplishing the impossible and rising again from the dead, thus proving everything he said, including verse 6, to be true. That guy was dead. There's no way around it. He had been crucified, which no one survived. In fact, John tells us that the Roman soldiers who could not make any mistake when it came to executing somebody, or they would be executed themselves, shoved a spear into his chest cavity, and immediately blood and water came out. There's a reason John recorded those words. John had no medical understanding of why this was, but he thought the detail important enough to include, and he maybe had a general understanding of this. But any medical doctor will tell you that, for, uh, that when someone dies, especially if they're hanging from something, a process immediately starts happening in that body, where the red blood cells in the person's blood will separate out from the plasma. These red blood cells, which are heavier than the plasma, sink lower. So when the soldier shoves a spear into Jesus' body after he dies and John records that blood and what looked like water came out, this is solid medically scientific proof that Jesus was dead and had been dead for some time for the blood cells and the plasma to have separated that visibly. Jesus didn't faint. He didn't slip into a coma. He was confirmedly dead. So for a scientifically proven dead guy to come back to life, that is impossible. Obviously, there are stories where someone's heart stopped for a few minutes and then they came back. It's known as Lazarus Syndrome. But in every occurrence, you can look this up, in every occurrence, the person only came back after CPR or some other kind of treatment that was administered by paramedics. There is absolutely no way that a person physically dies without any kind of resuscitation attempt and comes back to life. It is an absolute impossibility. Furthermore, there is combined scriptural, logical, and historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection from that death. He died physically, and he physically came back to life. So when a dead guy who fulfilled every messianic prophecy concerning the purpose of his mission the first time around makes the statement, I am the only way to God, and therefore heaven, you listen. Not only is that statement offensive to Jewish people who don't believe Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, but it's offensive to pretty much every other person, whether religious or not. Why? Because it means there is only one way to heaven. It means there are not multiple roads. It means that any other religion or faith in the world that sees some other kind of path to enlightenment or reincarnation or joining nirvana or have some connection to the forces of the universe or positive energy or earthly suffering or following Buddha's, Confucius's or any other teacher's instruction or calling God Allah or just being kind to people or no belief in any metaphysical being is not going anywhere and most certainly is not going to end up in heaven after death there's only one way and it's offensive and it's politically incorrect and it's seen as small-minded and foolish and that's okay because no matter what anyone says about it that still doesn't change that it's the truth In fact, it should not be any surprise to us when the most brilliant minds of human history are atheists or someone in our own family thinks they're too smart to believe in God. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that God chose to make the only way to himself and Jesus look foolish. Seem foolish to, to human wisdom. Not only to make it accessible to everyone, but to show you can't stumble upon it or discover it through philosophy or scientific discovery. You can only come to it by trusting in Jesus. One might claim, well, that's really audacious of you. The guts on that guy. To claim that Jesus is the only way to God? First of all, it's not my claim, it's Jesus' himself. We already read those words. So he's either a liar, or he's demented, crazy, or extremely narcissistic, none of which make him a good religious teacher. Or, he's telling the truth. Secondly, as pointed out by one biblical scholar, instead of railing against this obviously exclusive way to God, we should be grateful that there's a way to God at all. And furthermore, we should be grateful that this one way has nothing to do with anything about who we are as humans. It has nothing to do with ethnicity, race, political leaning, culture, past, background, sin, or personal struggles. It has nothing to do with who we are as humans. It's all based on simple trust in one person and what he did for us. It's all based on simple trust in one person and what he did for us, no matter who we are. Why? All of us have a sin problem, no matter how highly we think of ourselves. We have all broken God's standards set forth in his word. In fact, we were born as sinners. And before that gets misunderstood, there's no denying that we all confirm that truth every day, that we're alive. No amount of meditating or trying to align ourselves with the forces of the universe or praying a certain number of prayers each day facing towards Mecca or just trying to do enough good things to outweigh the bad. None of those things matter one ounce because nothing addresses the sin problem. This sin has created a separation, a chasm between us and most holy God. Because as he's holy, he can't have anything to do with sin. What seems as something heartless is actually something we created as human beings. It's our fault. Our ancestors, the very first two humans, are the ones who created this chasm by thinking they could be like God themselves and they didn't need him anymore. Then, like I said, every other human since that point for thousands of years have merely affirmed that truth. Nothing special about us sitting here. We cannot cure ourselves from this sin. Nor can we come to God on our own or through our own good works because we're the problem. We're not the solution. We're the problem. And God, in fitting justice to thinking we could take our lives into our own hands as the height of pride and rejection of God, determined that the payment for sin would be the loss of that life. Enter death which we've had to heartbreakingly deal with pretty much ever since humanity existed. Any one of us, any one of us dying is simply paying the price that we owed for our sin. This is the underlying and impossible problem and one that we have no possibility of coming up with a solution for. Furthermore, that sin problem leads to a permanent separation from God. If if left Nothing being done about it. That sin problem leads to a permanent separation from God. An eternal banishment from God. Known in scripture as the second death or hell. This is what we all deserve. This is what we're all powerless to avoid in our own intelligence, our own strength, or our own perceived morality. And what truly is an impossible situation to come back from. Try as hard as we might. We will never get out of it. Like our opening stories, this impossible situation is hopeless, no matter how hard we try, unless someone rescued us from it. That's where the love of God comes in. Instead of really making the way to him to be actually exclusive, that is that no one would be able to get there, he made a way. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, came to earth as both 100% God and 100% man to walk this earth, reveal truths about the mystery of the kingdom of God, and ultimately take our place to pay the price that we owed for our sin. The one way to God, and therefore heaven, is not by way of anything we can do to earn it. That's impossible. The one and only way to God is by trusting the one He sent to take our place. That's exactly what Jesus says at the beginning of our passage this morning. If you trust God, then you must trust Me. The only way to God is to accept that Jesus took your place to pay for your sin as the perfect sacrifice for that sin and trust that that's good enough. Scripture definitely says that that's good enough. In order to accept Jesus' sacrifice as being on your behalf, you must have, first have to recognize that it's your sin that put him there. That it's your sin that separates you from God in the first place. Because of that, we must turn or repent from that sin and ask God to forgive us of that sin only because Jesus opened up that opportunity by paying for it for us. When we do that, Scripture says that God cleanses us from our sin and adopts us into his family. We get all of who he is. We get his love and his protection and his comfort and his peace and his kingship over our lives. As our new father and king, there are certain standards he wants us to follow. Not just to honor him, but for our own protection and blessing as well. By accepting God for all of who he is, we then follow His standards out of love for everything He's done for us. That's recognizing Jesus as the truth as He refers to Himself in this morning's passage. Jesus and His standards will always remain the truth. Jesus and His standards will always remain the truth no matter what the surrounding culture says, no matter who says that's small-minded and politically incorrect, and no matter who disagrees. That still doesn't change the fact that it's the truth. Scripture also says that when God adopts us into his family, he immediately puts the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, within us to walk every step of the rest of our lives right with us, giving us comfort and joy and wisdom and transforming all of who we are into the people that God wants us to be. The Holy Spirit is also the down payment on our heavenly home, which directly connects to this morning's passage. That is the hope of death. When Jesus took his first breath in newly resurrected life, that very moment ushered in a brand new age in human history. This age that continues through today is the age of redemption. We continue to be a part of this age of redemption when death is defeated. Death no longer is that powerful enemy that we ought to fear. Jesus' resurrection means that it's merely the beginning of everything. Paul tells the Corinthian church that if we put our trust for our eternity in Jesus' hands by accepting his sacrifice on our behalf and recognizing him as the king of our lives, as soon as we take our last breath, while our body stays on earth, our soul immediately goes to be with Jesus where it is lovingly cared for by him until it's time for him to reunite it with a resurrected body left back on earth. At every moment after our earthly death, we are always in Jesus' presence, soaking up His peace and His love and His joy. That is the hope of death. In a world of fear and darkness, this truly is an immeasurable gift. We've discussed Jesus as the way to God Redemption and heaven. And we have brushed on Jesus as the truth, which never changes no matter what time or culture we live in. Jesus' resurrection also gives us the life. Because Jesus gave the one-two knockout punch to the powers of death and hell. He lives again to give us this life. Not only is this life the hope of eternal life with him at the point of death, but that life is the redemption, empowerment, joy, and peace of the life we lead now on this earth. God is the God of redemption. And there is no sin, no past trauma, no abuse, no loneliness, no misunderstanding, no loss of loved ones, and no distance you've walked away from God that God cannot and will not redeem and heal you of. Once you accept Jesus as your Savior from your sin and commit to live your life with Him as your King, you are God's child. He will start to go to work on your life. And you'll be blown away by what he accomplishes in your heart, in your mind, in your family, and the rest of your life. He will always provide for your every need. He will protect you in times of danger. He will correct you when necessary. He will pour out his never-ending love, peace, and joy upon. And at the end of all of it, you have an eternity spent in all of that love and joy to look forward to. That is what Easter is all about. All of this is a gift that God extends to each and every one of us, but it's not ours until we take it for ourselves. I could stand up here and say, I have a $100 bill to the first one who runs up here and grabs it. I think there'd be a mad dash up here. It wouldn't be anybody's. It'd still be mine until somebody takes it. Then it's their gift. All this is a gift that God extends to each and every one of us, but it's not ours until we actually take it for ourselves and we make it ours. So take that gift today. Jesus' life out of death gives us our life out of death in every way. And it gives us real hope, not only in the difficulties of this life, but our hope in death. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the message of the resurrection. We We thank you for the hope of the resurrection. We thank you that not only did you say, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me, but you backed those words up. You proved all of it to be true when you walked out of that grave on the third day. You are our only hope. You are our only hope of salvation. You are our only hope of forgiveness. You are our only hope of peace and joy and an eternity spent with you at the end of all of it. We thank you for what we celebrate today. All of our hope is hinged upon your resurrection. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.